you want to say. Welcome to Woman Unplugged, a podcast of encouragement for today. Let's talk about the everyday matters of life, womanhood, motherhood, marriage, friendship, and more. We're all new to this thing called life. We've never done it before. Tune in to this podcast and be encouraged, inspired, restored, find new joy and purpose as you grow into the woman you are called to be. Let's go. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Woman Unplugged with your hostess, Rosalie Elliott. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. I'm so excited about this episode and I've been thinking about it quite a bit because today will be a little different. I want to share my story with you and dive into some very personal and vulnerable subjects. I was just telling a friend the other day how it is easier for me to encourage other people, speak into the lives of others, or interview others, if you will, and talk about important and relevant subjects. But it's hard to become vulnerable. It's hard to be transparent. And what I mean by that is transparent about some of the deep things that have happened in my life, some of the very personal things. It's one thing to share your story and keep things surface level. It's another thing to really open up and talk to people about some of the things that have happened and share your story with others. But that's what I want to do today. And I hope that it can encourage you. I hope that you can find encouragement and truth in transparency and in vulnerability. So let's pretend we're sitting at a coffee shop or a bookstore, maybe a local park, your apartment, my apartment, sipping on some coffee or tea, whatever you like. If you were coming over to my place, I would probably serve you some cafe con leche or German coffee, Deutsche Kaffee, in my cute little china teacups that my mom gave me for my wedding. And we could sit down and talk and laugh and just share life with one another. Everyone has a story and every story is unique and has power. Story is important because we need one another. And I think it's so helpful to be reminded that we're not alone in this. Sometimes a friend or someone you meet might share something and you realize, whoa, you too? Me too. You know, there's, there's this less of a feeling of, of aloneness when we become vulnerable and transparent. And so I want to share with you a few things that I've been realizing about myself lately, things that has, have been healing inside of me. And it'll be raw, but I hope that it can encourage you. So as you know, my name is Rosalie and I was born 32 years ago in Karlsruhe, Germany. I am the second oldest of five children. I have two sisters and two brothers. And our dad is Cuban, Cuban-American, and our mother is German. And I came to Georgia in 2011, about eight years ago, not with the intention of staying, but life happened. And I'll explain that in just a little bit. When uh, we grew up in Germany, our life was fairly average, I would say, you know, the Christian home, my parents were pretty conservative the way that I perceived it. Um, you know, the standard, no smoking, no drinking, no sex before marriage, going to church, being active somehow, somewhere in ministry. And I remember that about my childhood. There's bits and pieces that I remember. There's a lot that I don't remember. 
Um, I remember playing with my siblings a lot. We would sing, we would dance. Our older sister taking the lead on teaching us dances and choreographies, singing together, playing together. We would play outdoors a lot. Yay, Germany. <laughs> Fresh air and playing with the neighbor kids. And then in 1999, I was about 12 years old, almost 12 years old. We moved to the States and we lived in Texas for about a year. My dad was homesick for the States and so we went there. But after one year of living in America, our mother and the five of us came back to Germany because my parents' marriage had broken apart. Now, to be honest, there had been issues for a long time. And for the sake of this podcast and also for the sake of my parents, I don't want to go into detail. But point is that they separated and got divorced. And so it was my mom and the five of us going back to Germany. My older sister joined the military and left back for America not long after that. And so I became the oldest for a season. And life got pretty intense. And same thing here. I don't want to talk too much about individual people in my life and the things that they did or didn't do because I really want to protect them. I don't want to shed ne negative light on anyone. So I will speak in general terms. There's something about sharing our story, but at the same time having mercy and grace for the people that have caused us pain, just like we need mercy and grace. And that's why it's important for me to share this story delicately in honor of those in my life. Because as God has been healing my heart over the years, He's also helped me to really look at people that have caused me a lot of pain with more compassion. Hurt people hurt people, they say, right? So a lot of times when we hear of people doing things, it's easy to go, oh my gosh, I can't believe they did that. And wow, what a horrible person. But if you knew a little bit about their story, their childhood, it does change perspective. I don't know if you've ever seen those shows, you know, you get hooked on a TV show and you follow the characters and you learn about them and about their story and you have the good guys and you have the bad guys and you have your favorites. And suddenly, depending on how the show portrays these characters, it sheds light on background and history of certain characters. And suddenly you might see this person in a different light. That's happened to me several times. I couldn't stand a certain character of a TV show or movie. And as it continually showed this character where they come came from what they've been through I started seeing this person a little different and I was able to show them some more compassion and I think that's what we all need I think we're so quick to make assessments judgments or most of us a lot of us are um based on what we know you know judge don't judge a book by its cover they say right but we do right we see the cover we see certain behaviors and we want to make assessments based on that but there's so much more to the story so my point is that when I share things, I really want to bring grace into the picture. So backtracking to my teenage years, right? Um, being a child of divorce, if you will. I even feel weird saying that, to be honest, because I'm so cautious about not wanting to sound like a victim, right? God has been really good to us and brought us through a lot and... We've even been told we are, you know, miracle kids with some of the things that have happened and the way that we've turned out. Um, I mean, I got issues, but the rest of my siblings are pretty awesome. <laughs> but uh, anyways, there's been a lot of grace and restoration. 
Nonetheless, things have been rough and there is a lot of darkness in those seasons. Um, addiction was an issue in our family. There was a family member who started abusing alcohol. Um, there was a lot of brokenness, a lot of substance abuse. And like I said before, hurt people hurt people. And a lot of times when people use substances to self-medicate or to ease pain or to numb that brokenness, it makes things worse, right? You don't really end up numbing your brokenness. You just bring it more to the light. Um, you know how people say when people are drunk, they tell the truth. You know, drunk people speak most truth. And that's a lot of times because I think we see, and I don't want to say people's true colors because even in that there's a lot of brokenness and a lot of misunderstanding. But when people speak while they're drunk or under the influence of some substance, there's less inhibition, less hesitation to, you know, think before you speak or before you act. And so the uh, substance abuse in our family with this family member in our lives led to physical abuse and emotional abuse and, and spiritual abuse. You know, um, they would say things to me like, I'm going to drink more now or I'm going to kill myself now. When I told that person to stop, that they were hurting me, that they were hurting themselves. And that was said to me a lot throughout the years. So over the course of time, I think that somehow I took on a responsibility that was not mine as a 13, 14 year old and upward. I started feeling responsible for this person and for my family, right? We had been taught all these things, like I mentioned before, don't drink, don't smoke, no sex before marriage. And now certain role models in my life were doing exactly the opposite. And I held on to those morals and rules even more. My family would tease me and call me Mother Teresa because I was, you know, the goody good you. Um, I would scold them for saying bad words. I would keep them in check. I became like this, this little mommy, if you will, right? Trying to keep everyone in check. And I would write poems and stories. And I remember writing a poem about being so sad how certain people in my family were changing and looking more and more like the rest of the world does, right? So opposite to what I had been taught you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be good. You're supposed to do right. And I held on to these morals and became even more correct, I feel like. I guess that core that I already had inside of me, being warm-hearted and correct, just became reinforced because someone's got to right and i recently discovered that i'm a type 2 on the enneagram someone who likes to meet other people's needs and give but oftentimes there's also pride or self-abnegation in that you know that self-sacrificial lifestyle of just sacrificing and giving myself up for others not practicing proper self-care or meeting my own needs and so when you're in that type of environment I'm guessing naturally you're going to start thinking, okay, there are a bunch of needs around me to meet, right? Other people that are not caring for me, I have to care for them. Especially when it's a caregiver in your life and you become the parent or the the, the, the caregiver of your caregiver, right? Um, as a two that just reinforces that idea, oh, I'm needed. And the problem with type twos is that a lot of times we want to be needed in order to be loved. There's this idea that as long as I'm needed, as long as I can give something to someone, I'm loved, I have value. And so naturally, I recently realized, obviously, I would thrive in that role, right? If there's a person in my family who is addicted to alcohol, who is going out and partying, and needs protection, 
that's where I'm going to be needed. And naturally, I'm going to be drawn to that, right? I become the enabler. And so I feel like I developed this personality of being a codependent enabling and trying to protect and take care of this person. And what doesn't help is that in with addiction, as some of you may know, obviously there's a lot of excuses, right? If you try to address the issue and tell this person you have a problem, you need help, there will be excuses. Um, there will be denial. No, I don't, right? There will be blaming. It's your fault. And um, in our family, what was part of the issue, like I said before, I would express that I'm hurting or that this is a problem and I would be told now I'm going to drink more or kill myself basically telling me it's my fault, right? And so here I am as a two, not knowing I'm a two, not realizing how toxic all of this is. It hurts. I know something's wrong, but not realizing, wait a minute, no, this is not my fault. But instead it reinforced this fear. What if it is? Um, maybe I deserve to be hit and to be beat because I looked at this person the wrong way, or I was a little bit bratty and disrespectful. And I wasn't a disrespectful bratty teenager, truly not. I feel like I was a goody goochu girl, right? And not even really goody goochu. I'm so hard on myself sometimes trying to belittle the good that I do. But I really was a good girl. I was trying to do right. And if I appeared judgmental on the outside, you can be pretty sure that I was 10 times as judgmental on the inside with myself, saying sorry to people a lot externally, saying sorry to God internally even more, just a constant mental battle of beating myself up um, for every single mistake that I made. And so as I was being told it's your fault or now I'm going to do it even more, I feel like that reinforced that thought that I'm responsible, that it's on me. I have to figure this out. And lately I've even been realizing that even things like the divorce of my parents or other divorces in my family, I have felt like are my fault. And now rationally, I know that's not true, but if I'm honest with you, and this is where I'm becoming vulnerable and where I might start crying is, I've been realizing that for many years, part of me still carried that responsibility. That if I was just more in tune with God, with the Holy Spirit, maybe God could have used me to speak to my parents and say, don't get divorced. Try to fix this. Maybe if I was more mature at the time, I could have said something. I could have told them to not separate. And, you know, God has used all of that for good. I wouldn't be where I am today if my life would have not turned out the way that it turned out. God is using it all. He's rewriting this story. But that doesn't change the fact that there has been this burden on my shoulders for a long time that I believe God is trying to heal now, showing me it's not my fault. And that's really hard to wrap my head around. That goes in other, that, that also goes for other relationships in my family and in my life where there has been divorce, where I thought if I would have just been more sensitive to God, I could have had a, an intuition that something was about to happen and I could have warned certain people in my family not to do this or not to go there. And I could have stopped some serious crap in my family from happening. And I've took, taken that responsibility on me. And so I would, I would enable, um, and then I try to establish boundaries, but when I try to establish boundaries, more blaming would happen, right? So for example, I would say, I can't be around you if you drink, or we can't talk when you drink, or, you know, we can't have a relationship like this. And then things would be turned around and a lot of spiritual abuse would happen. Very, very twisted to the point where things would be said like, if you don't pick up the phone, you're not 
answering for Jesus. You're denying Jesus if you deny me. Or if you don't pick up the phone, it means I have no time for Jesus. And the reasoning behind that was that this person in my family is a Christian and does love Jesus, but somehow thought that because Jesus lives inside of them and because they are a believer, right, and they have God in their lives, if I'm not answering them, I'm not answering God. And now keep in mind, here's this correct teenager and correct young adult, this girl who's trying to do right, right, who's basing a lot of her identity on doing right and on being correct and on being needed, now being told you're failing Jesus, you're not really a Christian, or saying stuff like your love has grown cold or the church has ruined you or your Bible college education has destroyed your, your innocence. And it was all very manipulative, a lot of manipulation really backwards. And for many years, I've heard that though, and I was trying to distance myself once I left home and once I went to college and things were healing in me. But a lot of those words, a lot of those voices were still in my head. And so that physical abuse, um, that emotional and spiritual abuse led to a lot of pain, of course, and a lot of, a lot of um, sadness and shame. And what I recently learned about type twos and the Enneagram and those heart types, those emotional types in general, is that a lot of the underlying emotion or drive we have is that of shame. And so I took on a lot of that, you know, the things that were happening around me in my family that were wrong, I took on. So if I saw someone in my family doing something wrong, particularly a caregiver, I felt that shame, right? If I walked in on some things that I should have not seen as a teenager, um, sexual things, I felt dirty. I felt broken. And here I was trying to save myself from marriage and writing letters to my future husband. There was a lot of shame, feeling dirty, feeling guilty, and then being hurt and, and, and so distraught. And then being told things like, well, I hope you get raped. Or, oh, you just want to get screwed. You just want to get effed. Um, and here I am, a teenage girl. Yes, my body is changing and I do have hormones. But I'm trying to honor God. I'm trying to do right. And the perversion around me is causing me to feel dirty. And I want to clarify something here. And maybe this is me, again, being over-explanatory. But I really don't want to just put any person that has caused those hurts in a bad light because they too have been hurt and need forgiveness and there has been reconciliation. Nor do I want to victimize myself and make it sound like, oh, all these bad things happened to me. Woe is me. I want to share this with you because yes, I was hurt. And even saying that takes me a lot of courage, to be honest with you. Even to tell other people what happened to me was not okay. And to this day, I'm experiencing the ramifications of that and the pain. Is very hard because I don't want to victimize myself. I don't want to throw a pity party. And sometimes I do. Yeah, there's days I just fully want to milk that pity party, right? And would like to just sit in my bed with a bowl of chocolate ice cream or whatever flavor I'm craving at the time, watch a movie and just cry my heart out. But that's not the type of emotional pity party I'm talking about. I'm saying generally I don't want to live life where I'm victimizing myself. Because I really have it really good and I'm really blessed. But that doesn't change the fact that things were said and done that really hurt. Abuse hurts. And some of you listening might have experienced that. Maybe you've experienced sexual abuse or molestation. Maybe you have been 
physically hurt. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say emotional or spiritual abuse. And that's painful as well and just as wrong because there's no marks. There's no bruises. There's no physical evidence. And that's so painful to try to tell someone I'm hurting and someone is hurting me, but they're not doing it with actions, with, with, with physical evidence. There's no evidence. But there's pain nonetheless, and there's brokenness and damage that comes from that, that needs to heal. And sometimes it's freeing to speak that truth first and be honest and go, this was not okay, and this is what happened. Just like when you go to the doctor, there has to be a diagnosis first. We have to look at the wound and figure out what is going on here in order to know what type of treatment to apply. And so once I left home, and I want to add, some seasons were a little better, things were okay, and then some seasons got worse. But there was a lot of brokenness. There was a Christmas where it was just the kids, and we were teenagers at this point. There was dramatic phone calls because a person in our family had gotten arrested for crazy drunkenness. And then again, more emotional abuse, being told, well, you, you know, should have checked on me, or you should have gotten me out of, you know that prison and it was not prison really it was like an overnight detox you know type of jail and telling teenagers young adults teenagers kids that it's their responsibility their fault that they have to go protect this caregiver in their in their home in their life it was really backwards and a lot of confusion comes from that and so my sibling story, every one of us has a different story, and I don't want to go into details because that's their story to tell. But when it comes to me, I left home around 19 then, and I went to Bible college. Um, I had this desire to either do a social year abroad, to do missions work, or to do, go to a Bible college. And a really dear pastor of the local church we were going to at the time, who has passed away now, he told me about this Bible college in the Black Forest in Germany. And he took me there one day. Man, this man had an awesome story and legacy too. And um, it's just so amazing how God uses different people in different ways. He was a drug addict, I believe, or an alcoholic himself at one point. Then he was homeless. And then eventually he became a pastor. And uh, like I said, he's passed away now. Years ago he passed away. But he was the one who showed me this school, who brought me to that school. And I went there and it felt so peaceful. It was beautiful and just a dream. The, the landscape, the view, the black forest, right, on this mountain. And I felt so much peace just walking into that building. I felt so much excitement. I felt like this was it. I need to go study here. And so for five years, I, I uh, studied in the black forest. I worked on my bachelor for three years, bachelors of theology, and then I stayed another two years and got my master's in counseling psychology. And as I mentioned before, I feel like that was a season of, of healing and of growth. But nonetheless, correct little Rosalie over here was trying to get it right. And I was very hard on myself. That doesn't mean I didn't make mistakes. Oh yes, I definitely did stupid things and I made mistakes and I was self-righteous and I missed the mark. But I also meant well. And I was trying to do right. And I also learned over the course of time that it was okay to say no because I feel like I said yes to a lot of ministry opportunities. I said yes to all the things, <laughs> almost all the things. 
And I think over time I had to learn that that would lead to burnout and that it's okay to say no. So I tried practicing that a little bit, that balance. And um, then I got involved in the dating world right up until that point. I had really tried to save myself and write letters to my husband. And I had crushes all the time. I mean, my journals are full of liking this boy and then liking that boy and then liking two boys at the same time. And I can't decide. I feel like I've been a romantic for almost all my life. And in college, as you know, it is the case for many people, I started dating a little bit. I met my first love, if you will, quote unquote. And um, I also started experimenting a little bit when it comes to physical um, intimacy, right? Up until this point, I was um, very inexperienced. So my first real kiss and all that kind of stuff happened in college. And because it was outside of marriage, not so much the kiss, but other sexual things, there was so much shame and so much guilt. And I, like I said earlier, would beat myself up when I made mistakes, when I had a bad thought, when I was jealous towards someone, when I was proud, when I had an impure thought. I beat myself up and I, I prayed and I, I, I said sorry thousands of times, it feels like. And um, I was very hard on myself. And so I did my thing with school. I experienced healing. I feel like I experienced growth. I really experienced God. I was really hungry for God, even as a teenager and up. And after the divorce of my parents, I had come to this point of saying, I really want to know who you are, Jesus. I don't want to disbelieve something because mom and dad said so. Who are you, Jesus? And he really answered. He really revealed himself. I mean, I could tell you guys stories, man. Some of it people might try to dismiss, you know, and then sake for the sake of or the name of coincidence, right? Or whatever. But for me, that was real. That was God where I would ask, you know, for something or, or, or he would answer my prayers. And as a, in childlike faith, I knew that was God. That, that was God answering me. But then there's also things that I really feel like can't be denied with coincidence, can't be denied in the name of science, right? Things like me sitting on my bed, this was still before the divorce of my parents, alone in the room and crying, maybe because they had been fighting or something. I don't remember the details. And I felt arms wrap around me. And I was alone in my room. There was nobody. I was sitting at the edge of my mattress or a blow-up mattress or whatever. We had just moved into a new apartment. And I was maybe 11 years old at this point. And I felt warmth, like arms wrapping around me from, from behind and just holding me. And I will never forget that. And I believe that that was God, that that was the Holy Spirit comforting me and holding me. And there's many more stories I could tell you from my teenage years and then during my time in Bible college where I really experienced God and I felt his presence. And it was so thick and so real. There was times when I could hardly stand. There was such an, an awe and a reverence that I had to just bow down and I would cry and I would pray and I felt his love. There was times when I really felt the weight of, of my brokenness and my sin. And then feeling that, that just grace, that amazing grace, just that, that revelation that he's forgiven me, that he loves me, that what Jesus did on the cross is enough. It is finished. I don't have to add to that at all. So God was healing. God was restoring I got to speak into other people's lives. I got to sing. I got to teach and preach. It was wonderful. I made wonderful friends. Um, friendships grew that I have to this day. And then I left Bible college. And I feel like that was really, I don't want to say a wake-up call because it's not like I was asleep. But it was just 
a different life. It was a reality check, right? You get from this this holy mountain, we would jokingly call it, or you get from this this bubble, if you will, of being surrounded by a bunch of people that are all trying to seek God and grow and learn and study. And now you're out in the world, right? And now suddenly it's hard to get up and pray every day. And not not to mention for an hour, right? We would have morning and evening prayers and we would have um, devotional times in chapel. And when you have people meeting together for that, it's easy to just join. When it's just you, you have to practice all that self-discipline yourself. There's not a whole group of people that are already meeting. You can just join them or other people that you have for accountability. And on a day-to-day basis, that's hard. You know, I wasn't fasting as much as I used to anymore, or not at all, actually, really. Um, Prayer time was less and less. It was more of a struggle to have the self-discipline to get up, to read the Bible, to pray. Um less people of that mindset to surround myself with. And when I came to the States, I was working with an organization. I lived in Puerto Rico for three months. And um, before then, I had met someone. And while I, as I said earlier, you know, had already dabbled in some sexual things during my studies, during my time in college, I had never gone all the way. That was something that I was really still trying to reserve for my husband. But I came to the States and I met someone. and. Friends, I don't know what I was thinking. I feel like part of the reason was that I had already taken steps, and I'm going to call this towards the fire, quote-unquote, right? That that final step didn't take that much long longer. It was not a big stretch, you know? And that's the thing with, with fire or with with sin, you know, is that when we play around with it, it gets easier and easier. The closer I get to the fire, the hotter it's going to get. And so if I'm testing boundaries and trying to see how close I can get to the edge without falling off. Well, once I'm right at the edge, all it takes is just a little step for me to fall over, right? Versus if I'm trying to stay away from the edge as far as far as possible. And because I'd already been experimenting and dabbling in that, and I guess my guard was going down more and more, or my sensitivity for that being wrong was going down more and more, that final step that it took to go all the way was not that far. And I know that that on the outside looking in is confusing, right? You got this Bible college girl doing ministry, goes to America and has sex out of, outside of marriage, right? And gets knocked up. Now, people didn't know about the sex outside of marriage up until that latter part, me getting pregnant. And it was a scandal. I mean, to many people in Germany, it was this scandal. It was this shock. And I feel like it was the grace of God that I didn't really hear people talk about me much. Um, but then later on, through other people, I got wind of some of the things that were being said. And it was very hurtful because sometimes, unfortunately, we Christians can be the most judgmental of one another. And I remember I had to disciple these teenagers when I still lived in Germany. And I remember, I don't think I will ever forget this. Those young little teenies at the time, now they're adults, were some of the only people that reached out to me with so much compassion. I mean, there was leaders and people that I had looked up to that I felt were more judgmental and condemning. At least that's how I felt. Maybe they didn't mean it like that. Maybe they weren't. But from what I was hearing and the wind I was getting from some of the people's responses and comments, I felt condemned and judged. But these teenagers approached me with so much compassion and kindness that really ministered to me. We really can learn from children and from young people. 
And again, you know, I didn't hear most of the things that were being spoken about me. Thank God. I feel like that would have devastated me because I was already beating myself up. But anyways, there was this not a it didn't take a big step for me to go all the way since I had already been getting closer to the edge when it comes to boundaries. And so I went all the way. And that was right before I was going to Puerto Rico to live there for three months with that organization. And unfortunately, because of that stupid decision, something inside of me changed and broke. So I started having a lot of doubts. I started questioning, am I supposed to go back to Germany? Should I go to this other country that I had planned to go to, go to that I had a scholarship to study in for another year? And I started questioning my faith. I mean, I was questioning the fundamentals, not even just the difficult theological questions, but like the basics that were so clear to me for so many years. And I went through this roller coaster emotionally and spiritually. And when I came back to the States, I continued, you know, to date and to to see that guy. And that then led to getting pregnant. And that's where a lot of other people got wind of it. And friends, there was so much brokenness in that. I remember being so in shock. And quick side note, I read through an old journal the other day. And it was February of 2011 when I found out I was pregnant. February 2019, this year, my daughter Raylan was born. Seven years later, my friend Wendy reminded me of this the other day. Seven is the number of completion. Seven years later, God restored. In the same month, seven years later, gave me a beautiful full-term baby girl. But I'm jumping ahead. So February 2011, remember that journal entry just in shock, not knowing who to tell. And I remember reaching out to a dear friend of mine and asking her, when does the heartbeat begin? Because I was considering abortion. And she knew exactly what was going on immediately, you know. And she, she stepped into my life and she came to the rescue. Um, and if she ever listens to this, I hope that she recognizes she's the one I'm talking about. But she came to the rescue. She um, had me live in her house for a little bit found accommodations for me to live. She took me to a um, pregnancy center to get checked again and to get supplies. And she was there for me. Um, and so I was in survival mode at that point. I mean, parts of that season are blurry. I feel like it was survival mode. Here I was pregnant. I didn't have a job. I didn't ha hadn't planned to stay in the States. I wasn't even really officially together with this guy. We weren't really even in love. And that love grew over time, but that was not at all how I had planned it to be or how I wanted it to be so much shame I lived in a in a like abandoned house for a while um where a lady used to live who was now in um, some type of cared living I believe and it was pretty run down um my sister came with her kids at one point to help me clean it up a little bit because it was pretty gross and run down and I lived in there for a while and then I um lived with the guy and his dad for a while that I was dating at the time and then I found a job um so it was really survival mode me trying to work trying to make a living I got a loan from a friend to buy a used car and then ironically that car was stolen um at one point and the detectives found it just a few days after I bought a new car <laughs> so if I would have just waited a little longer I could have spared myself that debt but point is just craziness right pregnant in a foreign country living in some rundown house 
car gets stolen, dating someone who was not a believer at the time. I mean, just so far away from how I had thought my story would be, how I had planned my life. And not so much planned my life, but dreamed that it would be. I had all these dreams and aspirations. I had like so much drive feeling I was called to greatness and it was going to be awesome. And now I was living like a 180 lifestyle, just so broken. And one night I woke up, I had cramps and I thought I had some digestive issues or some stomach ache, but the cramps wouldn't get better. Got worse and worse. I tried taking some medicine and started throwing up and getting so dizzy and weak that I knew something was wrong. And so we went to the hospital and on my way to the car, I felt the need to use the restroom and my water broke. And at that point, I knew something was wrong because I was halfway through the pregnancy about. I was 19 weeks and six days pregnant, about five months pregnant. And I get to the hospital and they do their tests and checks. And I remember they telling me the heartbeat's fading. There's nothing we can do. You're miscarrying. And friends, I hate that word miscarriage. For so long, I felt like that word meant that I missed the mark. And I already felt like I missed the mark. Like I was doing something wrong, like I had failed, right? Miss sounds like failure, sounds like something went wrong. I didn't like that word at all. And technically, it was actually a stillbirth. That was right around the mark when it also qualifies as a stillbirth. And so I was at the hospital and they would give me pain medication. And um, eventually it was time to push. And I gave birth to a little girl. Once she came out, we knew it was a girl. And named her Melina Rose. She was fully formed at about 20 weeks, 19 weeks and six days. All her little toes and her little hands, her little fingers, her face. She was just a little version of, of a baby, full, full formed baby, just little. And I had to wait a while until I was able to um, push out the placenta as well, you know, all the things that have to come out in that process. So, full on birth, just um, that the little girl was not alive anymore. And the hospital did so great in wrapping her in a little dress and putting a little hat on her. They took her hand and footprints. I'm sorry, I think it was just footprints. And made a little basket for me with little keepsakes of her footprint and her little sweater and little hat. Keepsakes for the, for the mom to take home. A little teddy bear when I left so that I wouldn't have to leave empty-handed. And we got to hold her and say our goodbyes. My sisters came to be there for me and with me. And it was all like a haze. It was all like a, a, like a haze, yeah, like, a, like a, a dream or a nightmare. On the following days, my body was healing and recovering. Um, and you know what? I'm just going to be vulnerable. I don't want to overdo it in the description. I might add that this, some of this content is sensitive content, so handle with care. but. I want to be real with you, you know, for some of you out there, this is the reality of what you've been through. Um, when you lose a baby, your body still thinks that there's a baby to feed. So my milk came in, I was lactating, and it was so painful. Um, engorged breasts full of milk, ready to feed someone, but there was nobody to feed. And it hurt so bad, like rocks. And um, 
you know, you put cabbage on or cooling to, to cool the breasts. Um, if you try to relieve a little bit by, by squeezing, by lactating, it, it relieves at the time, but then it keeps telling your body to keep producing more. And so that just adds to the pain. Obviously, your, your uterus and your, your body has to heal. So there's pads and blood and a lot of pain, just a lot of pain. And I'm the type of person that wants to always point back to the beauty that comes out of the mess, right? I want to I wanna say, oh, you know, beauty out of ashes. And there, are, there is, there is. There's always so much life, even in death. But that doesn't change the fact that it hurts. And I feel like some of us need to hear that. Some of you who have experienced miscarriage or stillbirth, you need someone to say, your little one is not forgotten. There's this song in, from this German group that I would listen to and talks about the world keeps spinning, right? Um, and I can't understand because someone's missing, right? The world keeps spinning and people forget and people stop talking about it. Oftentimes not out of a spite or out of ignorance, but simply because life goes on and it's not necessarily their reality. Other times they don't say much about it because they don't know what to say and they feel helpless or they feel like they're afraid to say the wrong thing. And so people stop talking about it and it's this taboo topic, right? Now, I feel like it's getting better. People are starting to talk about those things more. You know, those topics, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, sexual assault, miscarriage, stillbirth. You know, those pains that people don't want to talk about that are uncomfortable and hard. It's getting better. People are starting to talk about it more. But nonetheless, it's it's a heavy topic and it's scary to, to say something. Sometimes if we've... If we have a family member or friend who's been through this, we don't know what to say. What are we going to do? We don't know how to help, and that makes us feel helpless. And it's not fun to feel helpless or out of control. But if you know someone who's going through this, be there for them. Don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to remember their little ones. Because there was such little time with that little body, with that little person inside of us, that it's already hard enough to fight those thoughts of feeling like, well, you know, I was just so and so far along. Does this really count? Never really got to hold that baby. Maybe someone had a miscarriage and it was very early on into the pregnancy. And I want you to know that hurts just as much. It doesn't matter if you were four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, six months or nine months pregnant. Regardless if you were able to hold your baby and he or she was formed or if it was still a little embryo or fetus, this was life and a heartbeat inside of you and it hurts. I want to tell you that it's not your fault. Now, yes, I know some of the things we can do to our body can lead to miscarriage and I don't want to dismiss that either. I know sometimes people might do things to themselves, be it through drugs or alcohol or other substances that are harmful. And that can lead to stillbirth and miscarriage. But for many moms, they lost a baby not because they were doing drugs or drinking or doing anything harmful. And I want to tell you, it's not your fault. It was not that cookie you ate. I, I felt like that. I thought God was punishing me. I thought I deserved this. I had this baby out of wedlock. I had not been walking with God the way that I was supposed to. This was God punishing me. 
I don't want to believe that God is like that. I don't think that he's a tyrant. I, I want to believe that he was there, maybe even crying with me. Because I'm his daughter, and his daughter was losing her daughter, and it hurt. When you hold your dead child in your arms, no matter how little or old they are, it hurts when your arms are empty. And anyone that's gone through this, I want you to know you're not alone in that pain. It's not your fault, and your little one is okay. I believe my Melina Rose is safe in God's arms and at peace and whole and the perfected version of herself. Full glory, full beauty. I don't know what she looks like now. I don't know what she's doing now, but I need to believe that she's okay because my job as a mom is to make sure my little ones are okay and safe and I couldn't keep her safe. I couldn't take care of her. I felt like I had failed at that job I had. And for many of us, Motherhood is a big part of womanhood. For many of us, we identify with our roles as mothers, and, 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 and rightfully so. That's a part of who we are. And so if you lose a child, some of us might feel like we failed at not only motherhood, but womanhood. And it shatters identity. But I want you to know your little one is safe. I'm convinced of that. And it hurts. And I want you to know you're not alone in that. And that season of darkness led to a lot of partying and dabbling into some drugs. And friends, I can tell you, there is no drug that compares to the presence of God. I have tried drugs. I have gotten drunk. I've gotten wasted. I've done things that are, it's miraculous that I'm alive. But there's nothing that compares to the presence of God and to that love that just sweeps in. I, I want that for you. I want, I long for that for you. To experience that presence and that intimacy of God Almighty. He is a good father. And I eventually broke up with the guy that I was seeing. But before then, I got pregnant again. And this time, I again went into labor too soon. This time I was about 25 weeks pregnant and my daughter Rosalina was born at one pound and 13 ounces, three months too early. She was tiny, fully formed, but little. And she was in the incubator and had the breathing tubes and the bubble CPAP and the feeding tube and was in the hospital for three months. I would go there every day except for one weekend when I went to visit one of my sisters. I went there every single day. And over the weeks and months, she grew and she grew. And eventually she didn't need the bubble CPAP and different breathing cannulas. Eventually she, she breathed on her own. Eventually she was able to eat without the feeding tube. And I could breastfeed her and bottle feed her. And she grew and grew. Eventually came home. And still I was just in survival mode. Looking back, I feel like I was just trying to redeem my story, make things work with this guy who wasn't a bad guy, he's a good guy, but we were just not meant for each other. He was not my husband. And I was trying to make things work and create this family so desperately, burning out though. I nearly burned out. And I made mistakes too, I had lack of boundaries, and eventually ended things. I feel like God gave me the 
strength to step away and to finally be obedient. And I did the single mom life thing. I continued working hard, trying to care for my little girl, who is now, by the way, six and a half years old. And then I kept falling back into old ways, though. I would take one step forward, three steps back. I would serial date. I told some people a while ago when I was sharing my story, if, you know, serial dating was a crime, I'd be in jail. I was so desperate for love. And, you know, friends, in no way do I want to belittle my sin or belittle the mistakes that I've made. I don't want to do that. But just recently, I realized that a big part of why I kept engaging with some of these guys was because I had not learned to say no. I had not learned that it's okay to really take care of myself and my needs. I didn't know what boundaries were. When you grow up around an alcoholic or an addict, you really don't know what boundaries are. Especially with my personality, you learn to be codependent and to enable. You learn to take the blame for things that are not your fault. And so while I made bad decisions and I don't want to belittle that or make excuses for my sin, I really realized the other day by listening to this other podcast that a lot of that upbringing and that toxic life that I was in was forming in me these habits of just going with the flow, doing what I was being told. and so. While some of the decisions that I made were willful, I feel like there was times when I really didn't want to. I know there were times when I didn't want to sleep with a guy, but I didn't say no. I just let it happen. And then I just felt dirty and ashamed the next day. I made a lot of bad decisions, but lately I've been trying to be more gracious with myself. And I'll say it again, not to excuse my sin but to be more gracious with myself and to realize why some of these things were happening, where some of this has come from. This idea that my identity is based on being needed, that if a guy wants to sleep with me, if I'm sexy enough, hot enough, cool enough, if I can prove that I'm this jackpot woman, right, that cooks and cleans and delivers from the kitchen to the bedroom, then maybe I can be loved if I'm needed. And that's what guys need, right? So I thought, sex, that's what guys need. And that's how I can be needed. And some of them did care about me and wanted to be with me. And I would run, right? Partially, I played, you know, I was played and I would play. I was ghosted, didn't know what the heck that was till I learned that that was actually a thing. Which is ridiculous, by the way. Anybody listening, ghosting or being ghosted is ridiculous. We are grown-ups. We should be able to tell people when we don't, don't want to talk to them anymore. Just a little side note there. But... I'd be ghosted and I'd learn about all that and I'd be played in games and I'd like a guy and then I started realizing he was only in, for, in it for you know what. And then I would start playing and try to be that runaway bride, you know, the catch me if you can type of girl. And I would date this guy and that guy and I dabbled in all kinds of stuff. And I don't know how much detail I should go into because I don't want to steer away from the the point that there was a lot of brokenness, a lot of sin, a lot of disobedience on my part. And I'm learning lately that some of that was because I didn't think, I didn't realize that it was okay to say no, to take a stand and to figure out, do I want this? Is this the life I want to live? 
is this the kind of guy I want to be with? And um, it was a back and forth of a lot of sin, a lot of selfishness, trying to do right, beating myself up, falling again, then being discouraged and frustrated and saying, screw it, and just doing whatever. And eventually, by the grace of God, he gave me the strength for the second time to cut things off with the guy I was dating at the time, another guy, and um, to be obedient and break things off because I knew this wasn't right. And, you know, I thought, well, if I get it right for a year, maybe, if I can prove that I'm this godly good woman for a year, you know, no sex outside of marriage, no dating, no crap, then maybe God will bring me my husband. And as God is in his goodness and faithfulness, three weeks later, after a few weeks of just a lot of me time, just God and me and my daughter, praying and refining. I would sit in front of the fireplace and I would just notice a bunch of crap coming up inside of me. Not only the, the shameful, sinful things I had done, but other sins like pride and bitterness and, and unforgiveness. And it would just come up and I just felt, as I'm watching this fire in my, in my fireplace, I just felt like God was trying to refine me and burn it away. The, the impurities and going through that surrender and really surrendering even my desire for a husband and realizing that surrender does not mean, okay, now I can have it. Surrender does not mean, okay, if I give this to you, God, can I have what I want? Surrender means surrender, not knowing if I'm going to get what I hope for. But God is a good God and he does wish good for us, I believe. And I really went through that surrender of, of accepting that maybe God didn't have marriage for me. And then three weeks later, like I said, I went to uh, a Christmas dinner at my best friend's house and her husband and my future husband was there and we would talk and have a conversation and a friendship grew and we would pray because I really wanted to make sure I was not on just some spiritual or emotional high, right? Here was this God-loving, awesome, handsome, cool dude and we were totally clicking and um, I wanted to make sure this was just not something I was making up in my head. And I would pray and God kept confirming, giving me peace. And, you know, he was pursuing me. He was courting me. He was loving me in such a way that was so different than anything I had ever experienced. It was not a sexually based relationship. It was not um, a lustfully based relationship. The foundation wasn't those things. We were trying to do right. We were trying to honor God. We were honoring each other. He even told me that he felt like his job in my life was to adorn me. Um, just like God would adorn his people and restore them after they had prostituted themselves and after they had been laying naked in their blood and he, he cleaned them and then they went astray again, but he adorned them and redeemed them yet again. And my husband, my now husband said he felt like that was his job in my life to adorn me. And that one day when he would put that ring on me, on my finger and ask me to marry him, that was him adorning me. And I just started bawling because I felt like God was using him to show me men other men had taken the world had taken i had taken my clothes off i had given away in my hurt and in my brokenness and in my shame and god was restoring god was putting the clothes back on god was using my husband to adorn me and ladies that's what i want for you if you're not in a relationship right now or a marriage and you're still waiting and single and longing for that spouse please do not settle Marriage is so sacred and so special. And I know we hear those scriptures sometimes. Oh, don't be unequally yoked. And oh, girl, you deserve this and type, that type of man. It's not even just about the type of man you deserve. Or, oh, all my independent single ladies, you know, that man better have to do this and be that. And I got my checklist. Let's not come from a place of pride of I deserve this or I want this. And yes, you do deserve to be treated well and loved. I'm not saying that's not the case. But I'm saying let's not even look at it from that 
point of view. Let's not come at this from a place of pride, of you better, you know, man up. Let's come at it from a reverence for marriage. If you are yoked and bonded with the wrong person, that will affect the entire trajectory of your life. Divorce comes with so much pain, so much pain, but not even just divorce. Living a life with being married, sharing the same bed, being with the same person day in and day out. If that is not the person God intended for you to be, if you guys are not compatible, and this could even be two Christians that are not equally yoked because their goals are completely different. If it's all just based on, on sex and infatuation or, well, we have the same interests or, oh, he looks cute. That is not a foundation. He needs to be your Godmate. Screw the word soulmate. I was told by a married man I was his soulmate and I fell for that crap. I did some shameful, shameful things, falling and believing the lie that a married man could be my soulmate. I mean, what on earth? Screw that term. Forget soulmate. We don't need no soulmates. We are souls. Nefesh. You know, the Hebrew word for being a living being, a living soul. We have a body, a mind, and a spirit. God completes and fulfills us. We don't need a person to fulfill us or to complete us as a half. No. In Christ, I am whole. But depending on who you bond yourself with, who you want to walk this journey of life with, who you want to run this race with, you got to pick carefully if you want to actually make it to the finish line. So I encourage you, apart from the fact that, yes, you deserve to be loved, you deserve a man who is honorable and kind. Beyond all that, if you're single, wait for the right person that is your Godmate. Ask for discernment for protection, that God would remove any type of guy that is not from him, because that can jack you up. And even for my ladies out there who are in a relationship, and you know who you are, if you're in a relationship right now and you don't have peace, there are no fruits of the spirit, no peace, no joy, no, no self-control, no kindness, no goodness. If he's pulling you in the wrong direction, if you feel like, and you know you have a calling, do not yoke up with someone that does not have that same desire to serve God and do, to do right. I'm not saying everyone has to have everything in common. My husband is his own person. We're not, you know, doing the same thing and have the same desires in every area of our life. But the overall picture is that we could glorify God with our marriage. I mean, think about it. Marriage is so special that God in his word would compare Jesus and the church, the followers of Jesus, to that of a husband and a wife. He says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. I mean, he's using the relationship between a husband and wife as a comparison to the relationship between Jesus and the church. You know, that sacrificial love, that submission, that care for one another. And that has to be mutual. So I encourage you, I urge you, pray, ask for discernment, ask for protection. God says in his word, when we ask for wisdom, he will give it. He will give it freely without finding any fault. Ask for wisdom, ladies and gentlemen. Same goes vice versa. Just because she's cute or she got the body parts in all the right places or she got that smile or her eyes twinkle in the light or she sings pretty, those are not the factors that are going to carry you through when you marry someone. They're great bonuses, but make sure that you guys are running the same race. Otherwise, you will not get to the finish line. And I want this as an encouragement. And point is that God, by his grace, helped me to be obedient and step away. And then also brought my husband into my life. And my story is not over. 
there's still a lot that's unwritten. It's not like I've reached the end, kumbaya, you know, unicorns flying over the rainbow, and now we made it. No, this is still a journey. I still have a lot of growth to do. I have a lot to learn when it comes to marriage and what it means to be a woman. But I'm sharing this story with you because I'm learning, for one, to be more gracious with myself. And I'm starting to see where some of that crap came from. Again, not to excuse it. I know I've said that like 20 times now. But to really be more gracious with myself and learn from those patterns that it is okay to say no. That I have, my friend said this the other day, permission. We have permission as adults. We have permission to say no. And there's so much more I could say here. And I'm probably going to expand this into a part two, maybe a part three. Because I want to talk about those topics. I want to talk about sexuality. We don't talk about that enough in the church. Um, I want to talk about motherhood. How hard it is, you know. My my six-year-old, you know. I have a six-year-old and then a six-month, seven-month-old now. My six-year-old has cerebral palsy. After her birth, she had a hemorrhage in her brain. And... They told me of all these disabilities she could develop, and they even said that it's an option to turn off the incubator. And I'm so glad that they kept saving her life and, and, and helping her. And I believe God saved her life, but he used the doctors. I'm happy that they kept taking care of her and caring for her, tending to her needs. And she thrived into this baby, this preemie baby, who eventually could come home and breathe on her own and is now a healthy six-year-old. And she did not develop all those disabilities that they said she could have. And now I thought for the longest time that we kind of made the cut. She didn't have cerebral palsy. She does need some um, therapy, OT and PT for her right side because she you know, has hemiplegia, which is basically one-sided um, paralysis or, or um, not so much paralysis because she can use that side, but it's more tense, it's tighter, and so it's harder for her. That's why she wears braces on her legs sometimes during the day when she goes to school. And that's why she needs the therapy to help her practice opening and closing righty. We called it, we called it righty and lefty. Um, and if you were to watch her, you can see, as she's getting older now, you can see that her right arm is a little shorter than the left and her right foot is a little, right leg or, or and foot is a little shorter than the, the, the left. And when she tries to grab something with her right hand, she needs to focus more. It's, it's uh, um, harder for her. She has to work harder to open her hand and to grab a hold and then to close it and pull it to herself. And as a mom, it's painful to watch that. Now, she's a miracle, you know, she's only at like a stage one or two of cerebral palsy. And like I said, I thought we had made the cut, but it turned out I recently was informed that, for one, she does have the, a lower degree stage of cerebral palsy, but also I was told that whenever a child has a hemorrhage in the brain, naturally they will have some form of cerebral palsy. And it could be so much worse. She really is a miracle, baby. She could be in the wheelchair. There's severe cases of CP. And that comes with a lot of heavy ramifications and hard work um, for the child and the parents. And in Rosalina, I see this miracle baby and so much grace that, you know, we made the cut. She doesn't have a lot of the other disabilities that she could have had. But she does have CP. And as a mom, even there, I have to fight the guilt that it's my fault. You know, something was wrong with my body that I couldn't carry her full term. And it hurts me when I see her straining her right hand to try to grab a hold or when she cries because she can't quite get it right and I want to tell her that she can do anything that she wants to put her mind to that she can do anything she wants to but the truth is she can't necessarily do it all she most likely won't ever be able to be a surgeon I mean neither would I to be honest 
She wants to be a doctor when she grows up. And I believe that that's possible. I always want to tell her, you can do this. You can do whatever you put your mind to. But the fact of the matter is that there are things that are harder for her to do. That certain things are harder for her to come by. And that hurts as a parent. She shows so much kindness and gentleness to the little kids when she goes to the park. She is such a leader. And I really hope that she never loses that. She runs around unaware of her issues. Running and playing like everything is okay. And it is. And I don't want her to ever lose that joy and that confidence. And there have been times when she was afraid children would make fun of her braces on her legs. Her AFOs. There were times when she couldn't quite get something right and she would cry. And it takes so much strength as a parent to be positive and to say, yes, you can, you can do this, I believe in you. But at the same time wanting to cry because your child is struggling with some fundamental things that her peers can do without problem. And if you have a child that has CP or some type of disability, for one, I want to encourage you that you are doing a great job. Keep fighting the good fight. Part of me doesn't feel like I'm qualified to really speak to this because Rosalina doesn't have um, a very severe degree of CP. It's, it's very mild. But that doesn't change the fact that there are difficulties and hurdles to overcome. Motherhood is hard. This desire to raise these wholesome, healthy, whole human beings and instill in them values and send them off like arrows into the world. And social media doesn't help. We have this idea that being a mother means having it all together. Like I said in another podcast, right? The idea that we preferably need to grow our own chickens and milk our own cows and sew our own clothes, home cook every meal, right? And then find enough time to spend quality playtime with our children, right? Avoid screen time. Don't yell. Always self-control. Preferably smile. You know, there's all these expectations and those are good goals. Not the chicken and the cows. That's just nonsense. But doing good as parents, that's our goal and that's good. It's good to strive for goodness. It's good to do our best. But there's all this pressure as moms, as, as women, as humans, right? On all the things we're expected to do. Dads have this too. Men have this too. You know, I know that we women are big on talking about comparison. But men have this too in their own way, in their own world. Or as women, this idea that we need to be a certain way, you know, that shame involved when, when we've done things in our life. And I want to encourage you, I hope that this part of my story can really, for one, encourage you to be kind with yourself. Yes, make the right decisions, but where you have failed or made mistakes in your life, Learn from them. There's so much grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. There's so much grace for the mistakes we've made, the sins we've made. There's redemption available. Our story is not finished being written. And God can rewrite and restore any story. He can truly bring beauty out of ashes. And see, I told you earlier, I like to find the silver lining. And there is, I believe there always is, somehow, there's got to be. What else do we have? God is rewriting my story and he's using even the messiness that I created, those ink spills and the torn paper, the empty pages, the torn pages, the mess that I made, the ugly pictures. He's using that and he's writing something. It's like this tapestry carpet, right? My mom used to tell me this 
from the bottom, all the threads and this tapestry look so messy, right? You see all the different colors, all the different threads, and it looks like such a mess. But when you look at it from the top, you see this beautifully woven tapestry, and it makes sense. And another thought that I had with that picture is that in order for it to be a good picture, you need the light and the dark colors. You need the black and the, the grays, but you also need the white and the gold and the yellows, the light and the bright. It complements the dark. If it was all yellow, all white, well, it wouldn't really be a picture. If it was all black, same thing. But the different colors, the different shades of color make it one picture. And that's the same with our lives, that the hard parts of your story, the brokenness, and also the good things, they're all part of your story. And God can use that to point people to him. And I hope that this podcast does that. I want this to point him, point you to him. I really want that. In Psalm 130, it says, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel. And insert your own name here, Rosalie. Put your own name in. Put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. In Psalm 131, Verse 2, it says, But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Verse 3, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Friend, ladies, gentlemen, maybe you've lost a child and your heart is hurting. I want you to know that your little one is not forgotten, even if the world keeps spinning, and even if it seems like the world forgets. If you have a child with a disability, maybe you have a child with cerebral palsy or another illness or ailment, or your child is in the hospital right now, and you don't know what tomorrow might hold, I encourage you, put your hope in the Lord. If you are a lady or a man, and you are either single or in a relationship, and you feel far away from God, it is not too late to come home. Shame is not your identity. The amount of men you've slept with the amount of women you've slept with, the places you've been, the beds you've been in, is not your identity. There's so much brokenness when we are intimate with the wrong person, when we open our bodies in the wrong way at the wrong time with the wrong person. People can argue all that they want, that it's just sex or it's just a physical act. It's not. We are not just bodies. We're not just shells running around. We are souls. We have a mind. We have a spirit. We have emotions. We have a psyche. It's all connected. And when people merge their bodies and they intertwine through sex, something much bigger happens than just a biological or physical exchange of fluids. And there comes, there's so much brokenness that comes with it. I know that there's ladies, and I hope some of you are listening, who uh, have been or maybe still are living this life, and you feel empty and you feel used. Lady, mister, I want to tell you, woman, I want to tell you, that does not have to be the end of your story. You are not the number of men you've slept with. You are not 
used. You are not broken. You are not dirty. Men have taken from you. Men have used you. Men have unclothed you. Sometimes willingly, maybe sometimes against your will, and maybe sometimes you just let it happen even though you didn't want to. You have permission to say no. You have permission to say, this is the type of life that I want. You can choose who you want to follow. I hope I can encourage you with this part of my story. If you have a family member or a loved one who is bound by addiction, I want to encourage you not to lose hope. I also want to encourage you to establish boundaries and to realize it is not your fault. To seek help. To encourage them to seek help. And I really hope that you can find healing. And like I said before, my story is not over. There's still a lot of healing that has to happen. I'm trying to learn about myself. I'm trying to learn more about God. I think that he really longs to reveal his heart to us. He said, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. There's still so much more we can learn about our father. But he is a good father. And he is here to clothe and to adorn you and to restore everything that the enemy has stolen. No matter if it's been physical, no matter if you've willingly gave it away, no matter if it was taken to you by force, there is hope for you. There is hope, there is hope, there is hope. Friend, you are not what you've done. You are not what has been done to you. You are a human being. You were created in the image of God. His fingerprint is on you. And if you would just come home to a good, loving father, you can watch as he clothes you with his garment and puts his signet ring on you, adorns you, just like with the prodigal son in the Bible. We too can receive that cloak, that garment, and that is Jesus. He is that garment of righteousness that God wants to dress us in. Wash away all that pain, all those blemishes, all the dirt, all the hurt and hold you in his arms and sing over you like we read about in Zephaniah 3, 16 and 17. I pray that as you listen to this, you don't just hear another life story. I hope you don't focus on the bad or good things that have happened. But I hope that you see that woven through this story, woven through my life story and through yours, there's a red thread. And that is that there is a God who's looking at you saying, I love you. You were created to be part of my family. And even though you left home and you hung out with the pigs and you threw away your inheritance, all you got to do is just turn around and I will run towards you with arms wide open because you are my child, you are my son, you are my daughter. And I can redeem every single part of your story that you thought was dead. I can restore everything that was broken. Because friends, my God is a good father who is expert, master at creating masterpieces out of broken things. He can take violins with no strings and create a symphony. He can take these jars of clay and create the most beautiful pottery. He can take you and as he refines you and lovingly molds you, create the brightest gold, the purest gold, the brightest diamond the world has ever seen. Because Jesus the name above all names, the name at that, at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on earth, in heaven, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
That God has the power to transform lives. All you got to do is come home. And if you already are a Jesus follower and you already have a relationship with God, I just want to encourage you to keep going, keep trucking, keep looking up to Jesus, keep looking up to the Son. When we look to Him, our faces are radiant. Our faces won't be covered with shame. He said in His Word, put your hope in God. He is a rock eternal, and He will complete the good work He started in you. Every single part of your story can be used for good. Romans 8.28 This is my mom's favorite Bible verse. All things work together for good for those who love God. Thank you so much for tuning in today, sweet friends. I hope this episode encouraged you. Please feel free to leave a review or share it with your friends if you like. Until next time, this is Rosalie Elliott and Woman Unplugged.